Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Turkey's President Tayyip Erdogan suffered a rare electoral setback at the weekend when local elections saw opposition candidates make major gains in urban areas, including Istanbul and the capital Ankara. I'll be discussing the implications of that shortly with Asli Adin Tashbash, a senior policy fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations. But first, this week it's to London, where the sense of crisis over the Brexit stalemate deepened on Monday night when the House of Commons rejected four potential alternatives to Theresa May's unpopular withdrawal deal. Dennis Staunton, our London editor, joins me now. Dennis, we saw what happened in the House of Commons on Monday night, continuing stalemate, continuing crisis. What's happening there today, Tuesday? Well, while we're speaking right now, uh, the cabinet is in the middle of uh, a marathon meeting in uh, number 10 Downing Street. They had uh, for a few hours this morning what they call the political cabinet, which is where uh, no officials are present, no civil servants. So they speak about uh, the cabinet from the point of view of the interest of the Conservative Party. And uh, then uh, they're following that with uh, a regular cabinet meeting, uh, the the standard one. And so we haven't heard just yet what has come out of that. But what we do know is that they're discussing the idea of uh, ideas about what to do next with regard to Brexit. The the fact that uh, all of these four options, as you say, were defeated last night means that uh, at least Theresa May doesn't have to uh, consider what to do about some proposition that was uh, that was backed by the House of Commons. But the problem is that she still uh, looks very far away from getting a majority for her own Brexit deal, even if the Speaker, John Burker, were to allow her to bring it back. And what options does she have now and does the government have now? Well, one option is to try to bring it back. And one of the things that they uh, they might do or that apparently is under consideration is that they think about adding a couple of amendments onto it. Last Friday, when they debated the uh, withdrawal agreement and that was, uh, it was defeated uh, by the House of Commons, there was an amendment which wasn't selected. None of the amendments were selected from uh, two Labour MPs. Uh, and that Uh, that amendment, the government said it would have accepted. And what that would have done would be that it would give uh, Parliament the right to set the negotiating mandate for the government for the next stage of negotiations with the EU. So that if they pass the withdrawal agreement, then when they get on to negotiating the future relationship uh, in a few months' time, that Parliament would actually set out what it is that the government ought to look for. And so one option is they attach that to it. Another option which is being discussed is that uh, they perhaps go for some version of a customs union. Now, there were two uh, amendments or motions last night, Monday night, which were both defeated. One was a straightforward uh, motion calling for Britain to be uh, in a permanent customs union with the European Union. But the other was what's called Common Market 2.0, and that has uh, it calls for Britain to be in both the single market and also the customs union. But the bit about the customs union says that it should only be in the, the customs union unless and until such time as uh, they find some other way of getting frictionless trade. And they will probably never get that. But still, in uh, at least a, a kind of a theoretical way, it would mean that uh, that this customs union would be temporary. And so one option might be to see if they could get a majority that way. But even if you look at all of that, the fact is that the uh, the withdrawal agreement was defeated by 58 votes. 
and uh, that includes the DUP, which voted against it. The DUP have made clear that they will vote against any other version of uh, Theresa May's deal, which doesn't resolve the issue of the Northern Ireland backstop. And so they're gone. And likewise, some of the hardline Brexiteers would be even more annoyed by the idea of anything that includes a customs union. And it's just not clear that uh, there are enough Labour MPs to, who are willing to cross over and support the deal. So it's uh, it's a difficult situation for her. And then she finds herself, if she can't get the deal through, she then has to face uh, a couple of other options. One is that uh, Britain simply leaves the European Union on the 12th of April, a week from Friday, uh, without a deal. And the other is that she seeks a long extension from the European Union. The European Union says it will uh, only grant a long extension if it's for a good reason. The other track, of course, with the, the indicative votes, we had four of them last night, they were all defeated. There was an expectation that the MPs might have another go tomorrow, Wednesday. Does that look less likely now? Well, what they've decided to do instead is that uh, Oliver Letwin, who was the uh, master of this uh, indicative votes uh, system, he and uh, he's a conservative and Labour's Yvette Cooper, they've introduced a bill, uh, a piece of legislation, which will be introduced tomorrow and then it would actually go through all of its stages on Thursday. And what this bill would do would be that it would oblige the Prime Minister to go and seek uh, an extension to uh, Britain's membership of the European Union uh, rather than uh, crash out without a deal on the 12th of April. It doesn't say how long that extension should be. That it, it would leave that up to the Prime Minister. And then really she'd just have to think about uh, the reason she's going to give to the European Union for why she wants it. Now, Michel Barnier, helpfully enough, this morning was um, speaking in the European Parliament about this very subject. And he said that, uh, you know, the kind of reasons that uh, that might be acceptable would be to have a general election or to have a second referendum. Or he said uh, to look more closely at the political declaration. And that third one is perhaps the most likely that, uh, you know, because essentially what these indicative votes have been all about is looking at other, uh, you know, at ways of perhaps changing the political declaration. So you accept that the withdrawal agreement, the, the amount of money Britain is paying, the rights of citizens and the Northern Ireland backstop, that they're there and they're not going to be changed, but that you change uh, the political declaration, which talks about the future relationship between Britain and the EU. And would any application at this stage for um, an extension, a further extension, inevitably bring the obligation onto to the UK that it must hold uh, European Parliament elections? Or is there still some more room to manoeuvre there? Uh, not very much room uh, to manoeuvre because the thing is that if uh, Britain is to hold European Parliament elections, it's got to set the the legislative ball in motion uh, in, uh, by the 11th of April. So that's a day before uh, they'd be due to leave. So uh, so they really ha would have to, you know, if they're going for any kind of an extension at all, uh, you know, unless they actually say uh, pass her deal by uh, by next week or a deal by, by next week, in which case they would simply give them an extension until the middle or the end of May just to get things tidied up. But certainly if they're you know, looking for an extension to have another think about the deal, then uh, they would have to agree to have um, elections to the European Parliament on May the 22nd. And that's a prospect that neither of the big parties views with any relish at all. 
And I think it's fair to say Brussels doesn't view it with any relish either. No, Brussels is afraid that uh, if Britain hangs around, that it will be uh, difficult, that you'll get a load of uh, possibly right-wing Brexiteer uh, MEPs in causing trouble. But also that, uh, you know, given that if, if Britain does remain in the European Union, whether it's for an extra nine months or 12 months, it will have all the rights of a member state. There are not two classes of member states. So, in other words, Britain would be entitled to take part in things like the selection of the next commission president, the next president of the European Council, uh, and also to take part in uh, in conversations and discussions about any other subject that, uh, that comes up in the European Union. And so the danger, I think, from the European point of view would be that you would get a new leader of the Conservative Party, which you inevitably will, because Theresa May will have to go very soon, and that that leader could be somebody uh, who decides to take an obstructionist approach to EU business uh, and in an attempt to use that as a kind of a negotiating tactic to get some concessions out of the EU. So, so that, those are the kind of fears that uh, that uh, Europe has. So, I mean, from the European point of view, they'd like Theresa May's deal to be passed and for Britain to leave in an orderly fashion at the earliest available opportunity. And Dennis, just to come back down to this, the Yvette uh, Cooper bill tomorrow, which would seek to force Mrs May to apply for a, an extension, is that their last shot at an alternative? Or have they? Are, the, are some of the other options still alive, you know, the ones that were narrowly voted well, down? Yeah, they're kind of alive. So I think, so, so what uh, will happen is that, uh, you know, tomorrow and Wednesday, they have a, uh, what they call a business of the house motion. So they'll kind of set the agenda for uh, for Thursday. And so part of that will be uh, all of these, uh, will be this bill going through all of its stages and then being sent over to the Lords. But Yvette Cooper, uh, just uh, a few minutes ago, did suggest that maybe they'd have another go at indicative voting on Thursday night, and uh, now the problem that the uh, that these uh, indicative votes have had is that uh, the Remain side of uh, of the House of Commons is divided into uh, those who are prepared to go for a soft Brexit, like single market and customs union, on the one hand, and those who will uh, consider nothing short of a second referendum. And the purpose of the second referendum from their point of view, is to cancel Brexit, to reverse it. And so what happened uh, on Monday night was that some of these uh, very, very enthusiastic advocates of a second referendum, like, for example, the members of the new independent group, they uh, wouldn't support any of the other options. And the idea was that you could support as many of these options as possible. And because they didn't support any of them, it meant that uh, none of the others got, uh, you know, got a majority. And the reason they didn't support them was because if you were to go for Norway Plus or Common Market 2 or Customs Union, then Britain would leave the European Union on probably the 22nd of May. And so that would mean no second referendum and Brexit goes ahead. And that's uh, and so, so they're caught in this bind uh, where, uh, where they can't uh, agree to anything. Now, whether they come up with another different system of indicative voting. So, for example, they had been speaking about the idea of a single transferable vote where you would end up probably with something uh, having more support than anything else. But they haven't decided on what to do about that. And certainly the, the many of the authors or the architects of this process were very disappointed with how things worked out on Monday. So at least you might establish what is the least unpopular option, even if you don't get a majority for anything. Yes, uh, exactly. Something like that. But again, uh, you know, because 
uh, you know, this this has been one of the problems with Brexit for the last while, is that everybody still thinks they can get what they want. So the uh, the hard Brexiteers still think that if they keep their nerve and don't compromise, that they will get a no-deal Brexit at the end of next week. And that's a clean, hard Brexit for them. Uh, the you know, Mrs May still thinks she can get her deal through. Uh, people uh, who want a second referendum, they still think that they can do that by saying no to various other things. And it's really, you know, until now, nobody's had a strong, you know, or not enough people have had a strong enough incentive to say yes to something which is not their favourite option. And speaking of people who still think they can get what they want in the face of, one would have thought, all the evidence, David Davis, the former Brexit secretary, was on the Today programme on the BBC this morning, still talking about going back and renegotiating on the backstop. Well, that's, well in fact, uh, that's something that, you know, that uh, Nigel Dodds, the uh, deputy leader of the DUP, at the end of the uh, the indicative voting last night, he got up and he said, you know, we've now seen, uh, you know, Parliament doesn't like any of these options. The DUP voted against all of them. And he said, so the, uh, the one thing that, got, that has won a majority in this House was uh, the so-called Brady Amendment, which called on the Prime Minister to go and renegotiate the backstop. So he said, so why doesn't she go over now to uh, Europe, and even at this late stage, and just get some changes to the backstop? It's quite clear, he said, from what Barnier has been saying and Leo Varadkar, that they're going to... You know, they're not going to put up a hard border, even if there's a no-deal Brexit. So, uh, so they've, uh, you know, exposed themselves, uh, you know, in terms of this ball being a sham. And he said, go back over and sort it out. And uh, this morning uh, at the uh, at the lobby fair, I was asking if she planned to do this, and apparently she doesn't plan to do the, to follow through on this because the European Union uh, said very clearly that um, the uh, the, that, uh, the withdrawal agreement cannot be reopened and she accepts that it can't. It is a, a logical point, though, that Dodds makes, isn't it, that um, if the Irish government says there can be no hard border under any circumstances, well, then <laughs> that kind of does raise the question why you need the backstop in the first place. Has the Irish government kind of helped to reopen this uh, discussion again? Yes, well, you see, the thing is the Irish government has been trying to be uh, shifty uh, it succeeded in being shifty, but it's been try- it's been trying to uh, uh, to be cute about uh, about all of these questions because every time that anybody in Europe or elsewhere would ask what are you going to do about the border in the event of a no deal Brexit, they haven't been willing willing to give a, a clear straightforward answer, but they do keep insisting that they're not going to. Uh, have a hard border, that they will not have checks at the border. And uh, Michel Barnier said, well, you might not have to have them at the border, you could have them away from the border, but they still won't give these details. And uh, and but, but, but by opening up this whole question and suggesting that, in fact, you could get over uh, the problem of the border, even in a no-deal Brexit scenario, then obviously it does. It, you know, it, is, it does strengthen the argument of people in the DUP and elsewhere who say this whole issue of the border was uh, exaggerated for uh, for other reasons, and that actually it isn't a real problem. Uh, now the fact is that it probably would be a real problem, and I think one of the you know if you speak to to Irish officials, what they'll say to you is that actually um, the the kind of solutions they're looking at would also involve Britain taking some of its responsibilities. So you probably would have some kind of checks between Britain and Northern Ireland on, say, animals. And that, uh, and, and then, you know, the question is, what do you do about all the other checks and how do you protect the uh, the single market? And that's one of the questions that Angela Merkel will be asking Leo Varadkar when, um, when she comes over to Dublin on Thursday. 
And but it is one of the reasons why, like one of the reasons why the Irish have been so shifty about this is because they thought that if they spoke about it, it would encourage the kind of talk that you're getting in London now, which is let's think about doing something about the backstop. Whereas, of course, what Ireland and the Europeans want is just for the backstop to be regarded as a matter that is closed. It's non-negotiable and it's going to happen. So, Dennis, the question you've been waiting for me to ask, where do you see all this going over the next few days? Well, I think you will see these, um, uh, uh, you know, this bill coming through uh, from Oliver Letwin and Yvette Cooper. Uh, it's always difficult to predict these votes in the House of Commons, but I think there's, you know, given that uh, the House of Commons did vote overwhelmingly against a no-deal Brexit, and given that this this bill is not too prescriptive in terms of telling uh, Theresa May how long the long extension should be for, I think there's a good chance that that will, will pass the House of Commons and then the Lords. And then uh, Theresa May could bring her deal back, either on Friday or maybe on Monday. And and, and then the question would be, is uh, would the, the passage of the Letwin-Cooper bill concentrate the minds of hard of, of some more hard Brexiteers because they would be faced with the choice not between Mrs May's deal and a no-deal Brexit, but between Mrs May's deal and a long extension. And the, the worrying thing for a Brexiteer about the long extension is that even if the long extension is just supposed to be for nine months, say, till the end of this year, the fact is that once the, Britain does hold European Parliament elections, there's no reason why that extension can't be extended again and again and again, at least until the end of that parliamentary term, which is five years. And if Brexit is postponed by five years, there's an extremely good chance that Brexit will never happen at all. Dennis, I'm comforted by the idea we might be talking about this for five more years. <laughs> I think we definitely will, you know. <laughs> if any of us are able to talk by then. <laughs> yes, I think so. Thanks again to Dennis Staunton, our London editor. Next, it's Turkey, where President Tayyip Erdogan is facing the consequences of a rare electoral defeat for his ruling AK party, which lost control of the country's capital, Ankara, in local elections at the weekend, and was also facing likely defeat in Istanbul, the city where Erdogan first came to prominence as mayor 25 years ago. I'm joined now from Istanbul by Asli Aydin Tashbash, a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, who's going to help us to tease out some of the implications of this result. Ashley, thank you very much for joining us. How significant is this setback for Tayyip Erdogan? Hi, great to be here. This is a very significant setback. Uh, this is a city of 16 million. I live in Istanbul and I'm talking to you from the Bosporus. And it's not just the city of 16 million, but the financial hub of the country. It's bigger than most European countries, but its economy is, is bigger than most European economies. It has also been the bread and butter of politics, in a sense, the city that finances politics, helping AKP machine and uh, other political parties certainly raise funds. And uh, its loss to AKP would be a major blow to its ability uh, in terms of controlling the business community, controlling uh, even media environment, because uh, this municipal municipality funds have been sponsoring pro-AKP foundations or media outlets or, 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 you know, there's endless reasons why Erdogan may not want to see it go to the opposition. And of course, they had a very high profile candidate in Istanbul and the former prime minister, uh, Ben Ali Yildirim, isn't that right? 
Yes, very high profile indeed. He, Erdogan, essentially, you know, convinced him to give up his post as the Speaker of the Parliament right before that he was the Prime Minister of Turkey. And when we had an overhaul of the entire system to a US-style presidential system, uh, there was no Prime Ministry. So he was given the head of the Parliament, and then, uh, which is a fairly powerful position in Ankara, but he had to give it all up to run as a mayor of Istanbul. Some say reluctantly, but nonetheless he did. And it was almost slam dunk. No one thought he could lose. He's a guy with a good record. He's typically seen as a more sort of, uh, you know, a bit softer than Erdogan. Uh, you know, people who might have problems with Erdogan's management of the country in terms of his uh, record on civil rights could go with him and all of that. So it was almost taken for granted that AKP would retain its hold on Istanbul. This came as a huge shock. And mind you, it's not just Istanbul, but Ankara, as you mentioned, but Izmir, uh, the third largest city, Mersin, Adana, nearly all big cities, uh, and uh, the entire coastline, not to mention Kurdish towns in the east. So why did the AK party perform so poorly? Now, we know that Turkey's economy is struggling at the moment. Was that the main factor? That was very important, I think. Uh, the pushback against uh, what they see as a democratic backsliding is very important. There's no doubt that the country is going backward in terms of its uh, domestic trajectory. And Turkish voters tend to do this. They do want to send, sometimes send a message to people who run the country. And I think that it's easier to do it in a big city. Uh, where you know there's less social control, where there's more freedom to vote for whoever you want, and I think that uh, Kurdish population, there's big Kurdish migration in big cities, and I think the Kurds have overwhelmingly ended up voting for opposition. There's also a group of urban conservatives who no longer want to be taken for granted. They too have middle class yearnings. They think differently from their grandparents, from their parents, and they. You know, they've been critical of some of AKP's, uh, AKP's uh, practices as well. So in addition to secularists, you had this additional block, Kurds and or a small group of urban conservatives who wanted to give a message to Erdogan. You touched on something there, Asle, that they wanted to, to pick up on, which, as you say, you know, they, they sent a message to the government. And it's not unusual in in. Western democracy, certainly, for a, a, a midterm local election, if you like, for the electorate to give the government a kick in the shins and, and, and then go back to normal and actually support them again, support the government again in a general election. Is that what's happened here or has something more fundamental happened in terms of a change? Well, that's uh, something Turks are debating and Turkish analysts are debating. I happen to think, I happen to belong to the camp that sees it downward trajectory for AKP. I think they've run, they've hit a glass ceiling. I don't think there's room to grow. Uh, you know, it's just the nature of the uh, of politics. Erdogan has been in power for 16, 17 years. There's a, an entirely new generation of people who have come in who don't really appreciate uh, basically, you know, what he thinks should be appreciated in terms of his service, to, what he calls the service to the country. They also don't, they're the products of a new Turkey and they see him as this omnipotent, omnipresent 
figure out there and tend to resent that. So there is definitely a generation issue. The AKP does not do well with young voters. And I think that the, the second uh, thing is, of course, the economy. We cannot underestimate the importance of that. Uh, voters probably are similar in other countries too, but at least I can speak for Turkey. People do care about their bottom line. When the economy is down and we are in a recession right now, they do tend to punish the incumbent. So a combination of these factors may have contributed to Erdogan, uh, the decline in Erdogan's party. Now, one thing he does have on his time, on his side rather, is time. The next general election in Turkey is not due until 2023. How do you think he'll respond to these results over the next couple of years? Well, um, right now he's not conceding, which is actually not great news uh, in terms of our democratic practices thus far. But he has, he's... Uh, we thought he gave a he gave he gave a victory speech on election night, but it sounded like he was conceding a defeat in Istanbul. But now AKP's come around two days later and said we're going to ask for a recount here and there and there, you know, in 39 uh, districts of Istanbul, and we think there've been irregularities and whatnot. I I, th- I don't really think this is uh, even possible because AKP is such a perfectly well organized party machine that is uh, very active at the polling booth with their uh, both uh, both in terms of the government officials that oversee every uh, you know every ballot but in terms of the uh, in terms of the actual uh, party officials that are present at every ballot but nonetheless there will be a process in which uh, the elections are contested and uh, we just uh, have to wait and see the results so for all intensive purposes we think that uh, it's it's won. I mean, the, the opposition has won Istanbul, but but uh, we don't think uh, we don't we don't know if that will be accepted by the governing party. And, and notwithstanding, and this uh, has never hmm. happened, by the way, in, in in our elections, in the sense that uh, you know, I think that since the we, we've had one uh, contested election where. In 1946, with huge problems in legitimacy, people being forced to, in many ballots across the country, people being uh, forced to do a secret counting as opposed to open counting in front of party officials. But since then, we've not had contested elections. So if this actually turns into a saga, I I think that it would uh, become a bigger headache for the government than they're imagining right now. And, and notwithstanding, you know, the things we've seen over the past few years, um, Asley, in terms of um, s- some of the, if you like, attacks on democracy that, that Erdogan has, has instigated, is there still a robust election process there? I mean, can we, you can rely on the results and can you rely on, on yes, the, the winners and, being vindicated? Uh, yes, and you would be surprised how much faith people have in the electoral process, which is why it would be a tragedy, uh, you know, if people's Faith in the system is broken. So at each polling booth, there is representatives. Political parties are very active. It's very competitive. Of course, it's a very unfair media environment in general because the government is pouring funds and stipends and extra and controlling the entire media. So you'd have no message from the opposition, no interviews, the airwaves. You know, Erdogan conducts eight rallies a day. They're all broadcast and all networks, you know, with interrupting their programming, etc., but nonetheless, political parties do have faith in the system. And I think citizens still feel that if they work hard enough and campaign hard enough, they can make a difference. 
Um, it's a competitive race, but un an uneven playing field for sure. And lots of pressure uh, that goes on in eastern provinces with the Kurds. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But nonetheless, it's a competitive race. And, and looking beyond the, the, the immediate outcome, if you like, um, Asley, we know that Erdogan has built a considerable amount of power for himself over the past number of years. And he, he won a referendum on constitutional reform. It created an executive presidency, kind of weakened the power of parliament. Has he protected himself now against the consequences of this kind of electoral setback? Or is there still a path, you know, for the, the opposition to the secular opposition, if you like, to regain control of Turkey in the future if they have the support? Well, this was just the local elections. So uh, the elections, technically speaking, are four years away. And, uh, but we, I don't think it, it will be that far. I think we will probably have early elections, but it's too early to guess that. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. But the local elections will be important because, I mean, the symbolism of Erdogan having gained prominence in politics by winning Ankara is not lost on anyone. And uh, the fact that the opposition is now kind of coming up with a united ticket. They've done it in the general elections. They're doing it again, uniting behind one candidate. That's new, and that is also a game changer. And I think if, if Istanbul and Ankara is a win, for the opposition. I think uh, the government would probably make it very hard for them, financially speaking, to run these towns. Uh, but nonetheless, it would seriously energize Turkey's opposition, reaffirm the idea that things could change at the ballot. And then that would be uh, a sort of, that would be uh, that would be a change in the atmosphere in the country. No longer, you know, wedded people no longer thinking of Erdogan as invincible, sort of a lifetime president. And I think that's why these elections are very important and very important for him. He would rather that people think of him as a lifetime president, the father of the nation, the sort of second big leader after Atatürk, you know, invincible and all of that. But I think that... Uh, that might change if that will change if he loses this tumble. And um, as I just before we wrap the discussion, I wanted to ask you something about foreign policy because Turkey's in a, an odd position of being. Uh, you know, a member of NATO, which makes it a, a formal ally of the United States. But we've all seen Erdogan building relations with Vladimir Putin in, in, in recent times. And at the same time, it, it's kind of at odds with both the US and Russia when it comes to northern Syria. So I'm just can you give us any sense of what direction Erdogan is trying to take Turkey in, in terms of what, who, who does he see as Turkey's long-term strategic allies? Well, I mean, I think it's, he is more thinking of Turkey as a non-aligned country, going back to the non-aligned movement of the 70s, and maybe your younger listeners would not know, but basically not in the West, Eastern Bloc, not in the Western Bloc, a country that is, in his view, uh, you know, Turkey is a country that is a regional power. He wants to see Turkey as one of the great powers of the 21st century. And he believes that by sort of playing with Russia and the United States and, you know, sort of sometimes uh, maybe leveraging them against each other, he can uh, manage that. He does believe that he has a calling uh, to make Turkey uh, the emergence of the Turkish to see the emergence of the Turkish Empire, sort of uh, some AKP uh, some AKP officials believe that the Republican era, at least, was um, 
sort of diminishing for Turkey, that it, it, that it, 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 it pulled back from a regional role, and that they do, and they certainly do have a nostalgia about the Ottoman Empire. I think part of the problem is that uh, there is, Turkey is certainly a very, a very important power, country, globally speaking, and certainly a regionally, regional power, but there is capacity issues in terms of when you start talking about rebuilding the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it's one thing to watch television dramas about the Ottoman Empire, another thing to roll up your sleeves and uh, think of rebuilding. So there is a bit of a gap, I think, between um, you know the reality and the, of Turkey that is today and the um, and sort of vision of uh, uh, a global uh, power that is on its way to being an empire. Okay, and maybe just just to, to, to finish where we began, if you like, with these election results. Do you do you think? I mean, he's he's proved himself over many long years as being quite a, a masterful politician. Do you expect him to recover from these results, or might this actually be some kind of turning point? Well, I mean, I think that he hasn't decided what to do with the results yet. Clearly, I think he's pushing back. And contesting, I think it would be the first test would be what he decides to do. I think if he uh, decides to push towards an annulment of some size of, of some time with a recount, that would very seriously hurt hurt his legitimacy both at home and abroad. Because Erdogan, like him or not, has always rested his entire legitimacy on the fact that he was winning a mandate from the people. I am doing this because people are voting for me has been his thing all along. And I think if if it looks like the election, you know, electoral results are not respected, that would really hurt his legitimacy. Moving on, if they were to be accepted and uh, if 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 uh, would he recover? He still has 51 percent. So along with the opposite, you know, ultranationalists, he's in a coalition with ultranationalists, which are polling around 10, 12 percent. And Erdogan's party is around 40 percent. So together they still make up 51 percent. It would change the atmosphere in the country and, and energize the opposition, but won't be a game changer in the short term. In the long run, I think that, uh, you know, just the nature of politics, opposition against him will gain momentum in time. In five years' time, it, it will be bigger. In 10 years' time, it will be even bigger. So, um, I, you know, it's very important what happens in these elections. Asli, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for those insights. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.